You're in for a treat this week as we have one of the most interesting people in the world of money and psychology. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Dr. Brad Klons is the leader in researching and as a spokesperson for money and the intersection it has with psychology. In this episode, we talk about our money stories and how they can be destructive. We talk about how our money stories can predict the financial outcomes in our future and why the field of psychology has largely avoided money. And we also talk about how can we aspire to live a life in congruency where our spending is in alignment or as much as possible with our values and so much more. Enjoy. Welcome back to the most hated F word. Today, I'm pleased to have one of uh, a mentor of mine in the in the realm of financial psychology, and I'm currently taking a course of his, and that's Dr. Brad Klontz. And I have a bio here that I do want to read because I think it's important to understand Dr. Brad Klontz's background. So, Dr. Klontz is both a financial planner and a financial psychologist. He is an associate professor. Uh, Associate Professor of Practice in Financial Psychology and Behavioral Finance at Creighton University, which I'm enrolled in, and it is a fantastic course. He is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and former president of the Hawaii Hawaii Psychology Association. Dr. Klontz has a passion for helping individuals and families understand their views on money. His goal is to assist them throughout their financial transformation. He does this by providing ongoing guidance and financial planning advice. He is driven every day to help people meet their financial and life goals. He has received awards from the American Psychology Association and the Financial Planning Association for his work in the area of financial psychology. He has been featured on nearly all the major news publications, academic journals, and magazines. In addition to being a clinical psychologist and researcher, Dr. Klontz also owns owns his own RIA, which is a registered investment I'm Canadian, advisory for, yeah, uh, called Your Mental Wealth. He's also the author, of, uh, author and co-author of five books on financial psychology and set to release another book called The Ma- Money Mammoth in December of this year. Dr. Klontz, it's an honor to have you on my show. I'm really excited to be with you, you here talking about this issue. That we're not yeah. supposed to talk about, but we're going to talk about it, aren't we? We're going to talk about it. And it's not going to be the most hated F word anymore. <laughs> um, the, the first question I have for you is around the power of stories. I often hear you talk about our financial stories, our money stories. I've heard your story through your various books that I've read. And, and when we break down the power of story, we see that it's been one of the greatest exchanges of education and knowledge from generation to generations. It's helped preserve cultures and rituals. But can you touch on perhaps the maybe dysfunction or the issue when we inherit or take on money stories from our, our parents, their parents, our cultures, our, any, any form of our ancestors? Can you just touch on what, what that can do to us and how it could possibly lead to dysfunction? And then 
just turn that into a bit about your story. Yeah. So, so stories are so incredibly important and the most destructive aspect of stories, I believe is the fact that you don't know your story. Mm. And this is actually true for most of us. We don't know our story. We have no idea what our story is. And I'm, we're speaking very specifically around finances and money. So what is the story that you are playing out? Because essentially, you know, in, in our research, we call it money scripts, right? These beliefs around money. A script has been written for you. So you are, you are an actor in a story, and this script has already been written for, for you. And sometimes this script has been written generations ago. So not just your parents and what they taught you about money or, or your own conclusions, but your grandparents, your great-grandparents, the, the stories are, are incredibly influential. And I think what makes it the most difficult thing for us is that most of us have no clue what our story is. So we have no clue, first of all, that we um, have a story. We don't know what it is. And we're extremely unconscious of how we're playing that out in our lives. And what's so incredibly fascinating about it is that all the research we've done on these scripts these scripts, these beliefs you have about money, the story you're playing out in your life, this is what predicts your income, your net worth, your financial behaviors, your use of credit. I mean, the list is just endless and ongoing. We're finding that these things are incredibly powerful. And so the first thing I have to say about stories is they're so incredibly powerful, number one. And number two, incredibly destructive since most of us don't know what our stories are. Now, we might know the story about how our parents met you know, and how they mm-hmm. fell in love or whatever. Maybe we know the immigration status of our grandparents or great grandparents, but do we really know their approach to money and how they felt about it and their behaviors and how all of that has trickled down to us? Most of us don't know it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was through your work that I, I started digging deeper into my story and I thought I knew my story. I thought, oh, I'm a frugal guy. I'm Ukrainian. I'm going to save. And that's what we do. Is I'm in a rural province in Alberta, in Canada. And it was through your paper or the paper in one of your courses that I really started digging deep into it. And I found out that, holy smokes, all of my actions make sense for when I look back and spoke to my dad, spoke about his grandfather and their grandfather who immigrated from Ukraine to Canada because they were promised a parcel of farming land. When they got here, there was no land. So they were distrustful in the government. And then they had to work extremely hard to create their new, their own land and farm on it. And incredibly hard workers um, didn't believe in giving money to the banks and just didn't believe in spending money because they had nothing when they came here. And all of a sudden, like my head was just spinning that like on the surface, I felt like, um, yeah, I'm frugal, I'm saving, this is good. But uh, in your words, maybe you could touch on this money vigilance, but I realized there was a lot of destruction, dysfunction behaviors. Like uh, one time my brother had a pair when I was like 15, there was a pair of jeans that he had, uh, my parents had bought. He hadn't worn them for a while. I took them back to the store to get the money, to spend the money so I didn't have to spend my money. And I was just crazy things like not paying my bills till last day or a bit after until I got the second notice because I didn't want to part my ways with money. So yeah, the power of story has just been incredibly important for me. But here, here's my question though, is why on earth, if, you're, if you, your conviction in your voice was so sincere there, why in all the major news articles, the, all the information we see around money, no one talks about this? 
Um, I know it, it's quite alarming <laughs> and I don't fully under, know the answer. Um, well, one, one theory I have, and it's not really a theory, but um, you know, most of the people who've done research and um, think about and write about the power of our upbringing mm-hmm. and our family history in terms of our approach to life and our beliefs around life in general, most of that research has been done by psychologists and the mm-hmm. field of psychology and um, the, the topic of money, strangely enough, actually, we've, we've discovered why this might be the case, but, but strangely enough, and alarmingly so, the field of psychology has essentially ignored the topic of money, and, and probably quite purposefully. So Sigmund Freud, not to, get, you know, not to bring everybody back to college, but you know, the founder of psychology, um, he said that, that money is an incredibly powerful symbolic connection to humanity, and it's attached to being dirty and, and bad. And he essentially said that when it came to his own relationship with money and his father's relationship with money, he'd rather just suppress it versus look at it. So that's, that's the founder of psychology saying, yeah. money's dirty. I don't want to talk about it. I don't even want to think about it in my own life. And this has led to um, you know decades, hundreds of years of a profession that has grown up being, frankly, financially illiterate. And not only that, having negative beliefs about money and about wealth themselves. And so to answer your question, I think that that gap is, is, is huge and there really hasn't been much done in it. I sort of joke that when I got interested into the, into the idea of, of psychology and money, being a clinical psychologist myself and, and you know, joining into that inquiry, like within a matter of a couple of weeks, I became the world's leading expert in, in money yeah. psychology, essentially because no other psychologist had really touched it and we hadn't done it in a formal way. And so the great news about that in the last decade or two, that's been changing. So there's been mm-hmm. more and more research looking at our psychology around money. And, and to your point, Sean, and I know you talk about this, like people kind of know what they need to do. Like, this is one of my arguments, like the average American here in the United States, um, terrible financial shape. Like they, they spend too much. They don't save enough, but they know that they should do those mm-hmm. things. Right. So it's not, yeah. it's not like a fight. It's not a lack of financial literacy. Like everybody knows what they should be doing. And so then we have to look a little deeper. So if we know what we should be doing, we're not doing it. Why is that? Um, and that's where a lot of our work and our discussion right now, that's where this comes in. These are our patterns we're playing out in our family, beliefs that we have that we're typically not even aware of, and they just play themselves out in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Freud's suppressing um, the emotions. I don't know if it was one, one of your guys' papers, but I feel like we, not your paper, but the one you guys got us to read that he talked about, rather talk about like, I don't know if it, the word was poop or dirty, something like that, but over money. I was but, trying to stay away from you know, oh, the, the yeah. word, but yes, he, he said the strongest symbolic connection is between gold and feces. And so he was oh. big into analyzing dreams. Um, and yeah, so that, that's not a great association. Right? No. Um, and what's so interesting is that what we've been finding in the field of psychology is the number one source of stress in the lives of, of Americans is money. So that's like 80% of Americans like say money's the biggest source of stress in their lives. And I would argue to argue to you, and you probably would agree. Look, we're like some of the wealthiest countries in the world over mm-hmm. here. Like, like our standard of living is pretty incredibly fa- fabulous um, compared to other countries and, and, and compared to the past, like we're, we're doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why is it so stressful for us? I mean, why is that so stressful? And it really does come down to our relationship with money, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so I've heard like on this emotion thing. And for me, that was the biggest, um, I guess, 
insight was how much my emotions um, just magnified my money. Like, sorry, how much my money magnifies my emotions. And I've realized that it did actually, you can insert money, kids, work, and those emotions come up. But I, I largely ignored them because I was, I kept myself busy and just didn't bother to, to feel my emotions. I, and I, I wasn't intentional, but when, can you talk about what happens to us as humans when we suppress those emotions? And because I've actually had a conversation with someone where I was telling them about like, I was all excited, like, oh, yeah, like I went back and looked at my family history and talking about the financial psychology. It was another financial planner. He's like, Sean, like, why go through that pain and stress? Why put your clients through that pain and stress? They just want to save money and feel good. So can you speak on what is the cost? We talk about the cost of an investment or the cost of not saving. What is the cost of not knowing and feeling your emotions? Yeah. So I think it's, it's the way I look at it is the cost of remaining unconscious. That's the way I look at it. Um, And we, we will remain unconscious around things. We'll just suppress it, not want to think about it when it makes us feel uncomfortable. And so in a sense, Mm. it's our ability to tolerate emotional discomfort. That to me, that's, the issue. And we don't like to feel uncomfortable. What's in, that's very, very interesting. Um, actually, women are, are actually much better at um, being in the presence of uncomfortable emotions. And um, as, as a result of that, frankly, they actually have better recovery rates from trauma. They, they're less likely to suffer from many of the stress-related illnesses that males are more vulnerable to. And um, there's actually been a lot of research done in this. It's called normative male alexithymia. I like to say, I, I feel like as a psychologist, I need to say something that nobody can understand yeah, so that everybody thinks I'm smart, right? Um, but, but essentially, the research is normative means it's normal. Male, obviously. Alexithymia means without words for emotions. And so oh, okay. we, we struggle, Sean, males tend to struggle. A lot of it has to do with being socialized out of us around even being aware of what our feeling is and being able to tolerate it. Um, whereas women actually are much more skilled at doing that. Um, and so that, that's a big part of it. Like we don't want to feel uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a huge cost that comes with that though, a huge cost because lots of research been done on this. It's like if you go through an uncomfortable experience and you process it, meaning that you're able to feel those feelings and sort it through and think about it versus pushing it away, you're actually going to function at a higher level than if you never had that bad experience. Mm-hmm. And so there is the lost opportunity when we're uncomfortable with dealing with that emotion. And so, you know, I'm uncomfortable dealing with emotion, Sean. Like when my wife says, Hey, we need to talk. I immediately get flooded and I'm like, Oh God, I don't yeah. want to go home. Um, so, but, but, there's a cost that comes with that. And the cost is being able to analyze where we're going wrong, uh, being able to adjust how we're doing things, um, the loss aversion concept where mm-hmm. if, if I can take responsibility for the failure in my life, I'm actually much more likely to succeed in the future. But, that, but I have to sit with the idea that I failed and I made a mistake and I have to be okay with that failure. So, so there's a huge opportunity cost in not being willing to look at, mm-hmm. look at yourself and, and feel what's real. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I feel like a big thing that we avoid in those feelings, like come to terms and sit being okay with it around money is just the guilt or shame that comes along with like, oh, why, social media is the worst at it. It's like, why are these people on vacation or why this? Why don't I have my, my stuff together? And like, can you just speak on the, the, the interconnection of guilt that often leads to shame between money and ourselves? 
Yeah. So I think people feel tremendous amounts of, of shame around money and it's across the spectrum. It's like, we've already talked about how the uh, first psychologist in history said, you know, money is shameful in a mm. sense. And I think he was really sort of picking up on the idea that um, we're, we're very vulnerable to social comparison. And this, this has to do with our tribal brains, right? Mm. So we've, we've evolved over the millennia around our connection with a small group of other people and being extremely aware of our status. So we, right. we like to like say, oh, you shouldn't worry about status. Hey, look, you can't not worry about status. Like you're an actual human being. People who didn't worry about status, that gene died out thousands of years ago. Um, we were really concerned about how people close to us are perceiving us. And this is part of the way that we survived. So this is, this is a genetic inheritance from our ancestors who survived. How are we compared to the group? And the shame comes in is if I have more than everyone else, then I start to feel like I'm outside the group mm-hmm. and I start to feel nervous. I start to feel some anxiety, frankly. Um, this is one of the reasons why you see people who come into, for example, a large sum of money um, living in their little tribe. All of a sudden, they're separated from their tribe. They, they have a tremendous anxiety response and then they end up getting rid of the money, frankly. Mm-hmm. Like the, we see this pattern in lottery winners, for example, something people are very vulnerable for too. And so, so it's like that sense that I don't belong to the tribe. And that's what, that's what happens in social media. When you see a bunch of images of people, you know, um, like the pandemic's a perfect example. Like, um, so you're, you're, um, you have a family with children, you're overwhelmed, you're all stuck in the house. You look at somebody's post and it looks like, oh, they're all alone, you know, sipping some tea, reading a book, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you feel like you're missing out. Meanwhile, somebody's at home sipping tea, reading a book, feeling like I don't have a partner. Yeah. And here's another picture of this part, this couple, you know, cuddling on the couch. Oh, what an incredible pandemic that would be. <laughs> or, or, or seeing, or seeing, you know, um, parents doing activities with your kids while your kids happens to be on the TV, right? Then I mean, it's just constant, constant social comparison to make you feel terrible about yourself. Yeah. Um, and the way it plays out in money is it, it leads to something that we call relative deprivation, where um, research has found that your objective financial reality that doesn't have nearly as much to do with your, your subjective experience of happiness. So your reality doesn't really relate to your happiness as much as how you compare your reality to the reality of other people around you as, as you see it. And the problem with social media is people aren't really showing you reality. They're showing mm-hmm. you the, the actual best clips of their life. You know, yeah. um, And so, of course, you're always going to be feeling bad looking at social media. Social media is something that we, our brains haven't evolved into. Like this happens at such a deep psychological level. We're not even aware of it. We're just constantly feeling like we're not living up to the other, to the experiences other people have, or we're failing. Um, you know, we're failing as, as a male, for example, me personally, like I'm, I don't have as much money as somebody else. So now I'm feeling bad about myself. It, it's just across the spectrum. And so I think social media just really adds fuel to the fire that you're not okay. Mm-hmm. You're not okay because other people seem to be better than better off than you are. So then wh- what do we do as as people navigating this financial journey, because um, if we can't avoid, like you're like we're hardwired to feel or think and feel these things. Um, what would you suggest someone to, I guess, deal with this relative deprivation or social comparison? I think that for me anyway. Um, so, you know, even, even as the scientist who deals with this every single day, I'm susceptible to this. So mm-hmm. step number one is just not being so cocky to think that you're not susceptible to this because you are. <laughs> um, so that's, that's number one, like you have some humility. Number two, just being aware that this is happening. So the more that you can be aware that this is happening, the better. So I just talked about lottery winners blowing all their mm-hmm. money and they're, they're actually more likely to be 
to go file for bankruptcy than non-lottery winners. What's so interesting is so are their neighbors. Oh. Okay. So if all of a sudden you win the lottery, your, your neighbors are going to be putting their financial health at risk just by being around you because it creates that sense that, Oh oh my gosh, you know, Sean's got a new truck, you know? Oh, sweetie, wouldn't it be great if we got a new truck? (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, I start to feel some deprivation. Like, you know, you're having, you're doing better than I am. Um, and I'm, and that social comparison really kicks in. And so I think being conscious of this, so being, being aware that we're all flawed in this capacity. And then as you're looking at social media and you feel that sense that you're not doing, okay, just sort of kicking on what we call the observer brain. So the observer self, this is something like you've, I'm sure you know about meditation. This is what people try to achieve with meditation is this observer self that instead of being lost in your thoughts, you're observing your thoughts. You're saying, now, isn't this interesting? I'm looking at Instagram and I'm seeing somebody um, who looks way more handsome than I am. And isn't it interesting that now I'm starting to feel bad about my, and just being aware that this is what's happening. This is a social comparison happening. Um, obviously they didn't, they didn't get up in the morning looking this good. You know, this is what I say to myself, Sean, to make myself feel better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and just, just interrupting those patterns. That's essentially what it is. So it's, it's knowing that it's happening so that you can observe yourself falling into it and then you can easily get out of it when you're observing that. So, um, this makes me think of something about, uh, like as I've been exploring more and more emotions and realizing they have so much power to tell or like to learn from. And, and then I've been just doing a lot of Googling and I come across like individuals who will be like, like to your example about maybe I'm not so not, not that example, but like what I'm getting at is what is the difference between interrupting like our thoughts versus toxic positivity? So I know that's a big thing happening right now. And like, and I do see that with people with money being like, uh, oh, you know, it's okay that they have this. It's okay. But deep down, they're like, oh, no, my God, this is, this is bad. So can you touch on, I don't know if it's a small nuance between that interruption versus toxic positivity. I think it's, it's observing, mm, right? Okay, yeah. And, and just being aware that you have choice in this moment, you know. And, you know, to your point, like, I, I'm a very positive and optimistic person. Mm-hmm. I absolutely am. And so my Achilles heel though, is not paying attention to the stuff that hurts. Right. You know, and, and it's like to be in a, to be a fully evolved human being, to um, continue to grow, you need to be experienced both mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's when, once we start to deny parts of ourselves or we try to cut off parts of reality, that's when I think we, we are interrupting our growth and, and frankly harming ourselves in essence. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's, it's so interesting though, too, because, um, our experience of life, you know, is so subjective. It's so incredibly subjective. And, um, for example, if you lost your job, you could get really stuck in the misery of that job loss. And actually I think you should, I think there needs to be some grieving that happens, but some people will take that experience and then go on to start that business that they've always dreamt, dreamt of. And other people will slip into like a, um, sense of learned helplessness and not really being able to see through the other side. Um, and so that's where I feel, I feel like there's so much subjectivity in how we experience things. But I also feel like if you just keep pretending that nothing hurts, that's mm-hmm. going to bite you in the end. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, I, re- I really appreciate that answer. Um, cause sometimes I battle. Hey, that. Sean, we're getting really deep here. Like, <laughs> know, this is sorry. pretty deep. Okay. No, I, I'm fine with it. As long as okay, good. Uh, yeah. well, <laughs> uh, it, it's been something that I've been wrestling with and this, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about, I was going to talk about this, but Hey, we're talking about it. Um, 
I've always been a positive guy. And over the last year, I mean, I've dove deep into the emotion side and I, I've, I've discovered and found insight that I never knew existed, like beneficial. And, and, and then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to like use this to like, I don't know. I I'm naturally positive as well. But then I came across toxic positivity. I'm like, wait, is that bad? So I really appreciate your answer because I've been toying with that personally. It's like, yeah, no, I want to learn from those, but I like your observing like observing as opposed to just ignoring or, and that's what I, to some degree I was doing before is just ignoring things. So I appreciate that. Um, and actually this reminds me of something that, um, uh, this observing thing, which I really, really appreciate because yeah, like, cause I can observe myself feeling these emotions and it's natural, but if I can just sit back and observe it and something that I submitted to you guys last night was the money log exercise. And, it really walked me through that. And I, I actually pulled out a quote that I, uh, that rang through my head every time I've done this. I've done it a few times. So I'm going to read this quote. Then I'd like, if you can explain the money log exercise that people can use in relating to, because it really did allow me to sit back and observe what was happening. But the quotes from man searches for meeting, which a very popular quote from Viktor Frankl, but it reminded me so much every time I've done that. I'm going to read the quote between stimulus and response. There's a space in that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our happiness. So can you touch on what is the money log and how does it create that space or that ability for us to observe our financial uh, feelings? Wow, incredible segue there too, because I, I think that's that's what Viktor Frankl is is talking about. It's that space, and how do you how do you know that that there is that space? Because so much of what happens is automatic, and so the money script log is really really designed to interrupt the automatic thought, which leads to an automatic response, an unconscious response. We're not paying attention. And by the way, we all have these automatic thoughts. Um, they, they essentially run our life, okay? Like, you, you don't need a lot of consciousness to survive and to, frankly, thrive um, in, in our lives. We're, we're, we're extremely efficiently designed to um, function incredibly well as a species. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of this is automated. It's automatic. You know, it's like, are you really thinking through the steps of getting up from your chair and going to the refrigerator and getting food? No, those essentially, it's essentially all unconscious. You're probably thinking about something totally different. And so it's an incredible, powerful thing, the way that we operate in the world. And the problem is, is when it's not working, right? (laughs) <laughs> when you're, when you're hitting your head, hitting your head against the wall or you're not where you want to be, or you're struggling to do things differently. This, this is where that automation hurts us. And so what Viktor Frankl was talking about there is in between stimulus, in between this impulse and then your action, this is where we want to increase our consciousness. And so the money script log is designed to do exactly that. So essentially um, it, it brings out what's the stimulus, what's happening in your life. So for example, let's say, um, I'm feeling sad, you know, or um, something bad happened. And so, well, what's the belief associated with that? And so this is really focused on money. And, and so t- typically what you see, well, like, for example, with overspenders, it's like, um, well, I'll buy something and then it'll make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is just sort of this automatic response to feeling bad. And so what that is designed to do is actually dissect the situation. And so quite often it's like, I overspent. Okay. So let's look at what was happening then. So what, what was the emotional experience you had? Was there a triggering event? What was the belief you had related to that? And then your action, how did it play out? Um, and it, it's meant to identify that 
And then also look for alternative behaviors. Right. So for in our overspending example, people will often overspend because they feel lonely or scared or sad. They believe that buying something's going to make them feel happier. It might give them some immediate short-term relief, but then they feel worse on the other side right. because now they're in debt. And so is there a, a better way to deal with that triggering event, essentially? So with that increased consciousness, how can I have a, make a better choice? That's essentially what it's designed to do. Yeah. And I, I really liked that specific part in it is like, is there another way to deal with whatever the emotion that was coming up? And yeah, it just in our automatic world or fast paced world, this is, this, this exercise is foreign. <laughs> like, I'm so happy you brought it up, but, and so powerful each time I've done it. So um, yeah, I, I really, uh, is that available on your site anywhere? If people, um, no, I don't. I think it's in it's in a couple of my books. In a couple of your books, so okay. like it's in Mind Over Money and Wired for Wealth. So right, okay, um, yeah, no, I, I really I really enjoyed that exercise. I was doing it again last night. <laughs> um, so this, I think this is a good time to talk about. Um, like we've been talking about emotions that we can't ignore. Emotions we talked about our ancestors and the beliefs that we. I guess, inherited from them. Can you touch on, I found it very powerful, uh, just your triangle, the, the illustration of a triangle with the three circles on how our flashpoints create beliefs and so forth. Yeah, so um, essentially, I feel like you're, you're giving me a test. I'm going to pass this test, Sean. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm going to pass it because I think I drew that triangle. Um, so, so essentially, what that was designed to do is to just show this, this, the interrelated pattern that we have. In our research, we call it financial flashpoints. So these are those early experience, typically they're early, but there's experiences we have about money and um, what, what our research is showing, and this isn't a big surprise, it shouldn't be, that our experiences then lead to beliefs. And so the other side of the triangle is money scripts. So we have these financial flashpoint experiences, they lead to a set of beliefs, and these beliefs then lead to our financial behaviors which then gives us more experiences. And then it becomes this loop, um, this triangle that keeps going. So for example, my grandfather, just as an example, he, he went to the bank one day when he was a young man and all the money was gone and it was the great depression and he lost all his money in the bank. So that is a very powerful financial flashpoint experience. So just imagine going to the bank and all, everything you've worked for your entire life is now gone forever. And you can't even get anyone to talk to you. The bank is locked. So that was his experience. Um, that led, as you can imagine, that would be pretty traumatic. That led mm. to a belief that you can't trust banks with your money. Now, that's a very logical belief because there mm. he was trusting a bank. And now, <laughs> just like your example of your, um, was it your parents or grandparents? And it's like, here, yeah, here's, here's some land for you. Oops, psych, you don't get mm. it. Well, <laughs> well, the only logical response to that is you can't trust the government. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. all these beliefs make total sense when you understand where they came from. So my grandfather's belief... You can't trust banks with your money. Um, that led to him engaging in what became self-destructive. Like he never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life, all the way up until he died in his 90s. Oh, wow. So that's, the, that's, a, that's a perfect example of how that loop. And then because of that, he had the experience of, of essentially not, not having money his whole life and not doing well financially for the rest of his life because of that experience. Um, and so that's an example of how it all ties together. So we, we've, we've touched a lot on this, and this is what is really fascinating me as, um, in your words of, in the book, Integrated Financial Planning, is I've always been an external financial planner. So I've been trained as do portfolio analysis, do our six steps of a CFP, and so forth. Um, 
But when I look at this loop that you talk about, like flashpoints or beliefs, experience and reinforces it, it's no wonder that when we tell people to save more or do this, if you want to retire, uh, you need to put away this much money. But it's no wonder we don't do it. It's because we've got this, as, as we talked about already, this automated loop going on in the back of our head. How do we, like if, if I'm a listener listening and uh, I want to start exploring that, because I know emotions can be deep, scary, and hard. What would you suggest someone who's like, okay, wait a second, maybe I've got this loop going on. What are my, what are my steps to start finding some, I guess, insight. Yeah. So my first thought is, is, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know? So, so if you're getting everything you want out of life financially, then you're probably doing great. So you may have had experiences, but maybe they didn't shape your beliefs that strongly, or maybe they shaped them in a positive direction and you're getting exactly what you want. So that's fabulous. However, I would just ask your listeners right now to think like, is there something you're not getting? Mm -hmm. Is there something that you're not happy with? in terms of your relationship with money? Are you not making as much money as you'd like? Do you not have as much money saved? Are you spending in ways that make you feel uncomfortable? And if that's the case, that's where this analysis can be incredibly powerful because your behaviors around money make perfect sense. You're not crazy. You're not stupid. You, You may be doing something that's not good for you, but your beliefs, your behaviors around money make perfect sense if you understand your money scripts and where they came from. And so that's the, and frankly, you can hear me getting excited about it, Sean, because mm-hmm. people don't make these connections. And I've worked with many, many people who are all of a sudden going, oh my gosh, I, now I understand why I'm so anxious around money. Mm-hmm. I never knew the story. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is one of the things I'd encourage your listeners to do too, is try to, try to flesh out the story. You, you don't know your story. Go, go interview your parents. What was it like for them growing up around money? What was it like for your grandparents? Do that research because I promise you, if you do that, you're going to have tons of discoveries where all of a sudden your struggle with money, your anxiety around money, your mis- money quote mismanagement is going to make perfect sense. All of a sudden, for many people, it's like a light bulb goes on. And you're like, oh my gosh, no, of course I would do this. And one of the powerful things about that, I call it de-shaming. So if all of a sudden, mm-hmm. um, it's what, it's a psychologist's favorite trick, right? We just blame your mother for everything. <laughs> and then you feel better about yourself. Um, but essentially, that's, it's looking at your behaviors in the context of your family system and your upbringing and your culture and what other people were doing. You are, um, for you, you're like a fish in water. You're just swimming around. But understand this, that water is not absolute reality. That's your little microcosm of reality. You're in a little fishbowl and there's an entire ocean out there of ways of looking at things. And so that's what makes it so exciting, I think, is to really tie this into that story. Because once you know the story, then you can write a different story. Yeah. And you know, I love how you say it makes perfect sense. And uh, to your point of de-shaming is like, there's so much people who feel like, ah, why do I have this and feel bad about themselves? But you're right. Like, we're a product of our circumstances and it makes perfect sense. I, I do want to say something on the, um, when you're, this is a lived experience comment. Uh, I felt like everything was fine for me. I, I mean, I came from a privileged background, both from, we, we had a financial means, but also like emotionally, you know, I, I'm a fortunate that I was brought up the way I was. And I thought everything was fine. And you know what? I when I started reading your books, I, I like went and did a, a money story. And you know, looking back, it was a surface level money story. But since being in the course, I actually dove deep. 
And I made discoveries that just blew me away. And to your point on the, 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 the ocean, like I thought I had my ocean under control, like my little ecosystem in my ocean. But I realized there's so many different ways. And um, I urge everybody. And, and I think because I guess we'll go to the overconfidence <laughs> bias that we all have is maybe we're overconfident that we're doing well. But that was, I guess, a I was just thing. assuming that 80% of your listeners are stressed about money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So given, given that's the research. Yeah. But, but to your point too, Sean, I would also just sort of um, make the argument that there's something inside of you that's, that's dedicated towards personal growth or development and being open-minded in that sense. And I just want to talk about that openness yeah. to experience thing. Um, that openness to experience is a key psychological variable that's been associated with success. Um, and so the people who are the most successful financially and in other ways of their life um, have this courage to like unwrap their brain a little bit and to look around in there and look, look for ways to optimize and, and having that openness to new information. And so um, it's something to cultivate if you don't already have it, um, but, but it's definitely associated with, with high performers. Mm, okay. Yeah. Oh, so much. The brain is just fascinates me. But uh, so uh, I'm looking at a time, be mindful. Um, this is kind of a, uh, a big, big, I guess it's not big topic, but this is about what can we do? So we're all living in a pandemic. It's not country based. The world is facing this pandemic right now and it's real and it's unfortunate. And there's a lot of negative uh, experiences that are happening. I had a, a chat with a friend of mine who lives here in Edmonton and uh, he was on our podcast and he, he's a economic, economic, he's a economic, well, I can't even say the word economist of well-being. And uh, he, he always has said to me that we're living in uh, a financial pandemic even before this. So just that there's constant drips of chronic stress around money. And I heard you once say that, I'm going to get this wrong. You can correct me, but um, um, we're, we, we won't die from our money, but maybe the feelings or the, the stress associated with it. So can you just touch on, based on your experience of research, what is this chronic stress that we're feeling and what is it like physically doing to our bodies? Yeah. So as I did mention, you know, money is the number one source of stress in the lives of um, at least people in the United States. Same I have Canada. a feeling, yeah, I had a feeling it's pretty similar there. Um, and, and it's like, so that's a lot of people like, you know, a lot of people. And by the way, this research has been going on for a very long time. So you might say, oh, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, guess what? It's been like this for a while, mm -hmm. um, for, for over a decade now. It's like the biggest source of stress in people's lives. Um, and the problem with stress is, you know, stress kills people. Um, and there's been studies done on this that financial stress is a um, very strong predictor of death, like early death. And they've, they've done some studies where it's, it's akin to like heart disease and smoking and, um, you know, diabetes. I mean, it it's, can be deadly. And so the thing that I, that I like to remind people of is, you know, chances are, even in the midst of this pandemic, um, again, we're extremely blessed to be living um, in America, mm -hmm. to be living at this time in history. Chances are that your financial situation is not life-threatening um, for us, for your listeners right now. Chances mm -hmm. are. Now, there's a really good chance it's not. Um, and, but your financial stress can kill you. And so this is the perspective I want us to keep in mind, is that um, you know, hard times come. 
the average millionaire has had three major financial catastrophes in their life before they've been gone on to success. And so I would just say to you that if you're experiencing a financial catastrophe, um, well, I hope you have two more so that you can become a millionaire someday. And so try to keep this in perspective, right? Um, and, and we can bounce back from this. And, and many of us will bounce back stronger. And if we go through this experience, um, any bad experience, if we go through it with our eyes wide open and not blame everybody else, which is extremely seductive to, to do. And frankly, there's probably a lot of people for you to blame in your life for everything, but we don't really grow from that. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is look at what is my role in this situation. And so, hey, if the government came in and shut down your business, you know, I'm not sure how much of a role you had in that. So let's let's be realistic here. Um, did you have an emergency fund though? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if the answer is no, well, then there's a lesson to be learned there. Um, maybe you had a three month emergency fund, but guess what? This pandemic has gone on longer. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you need a six, six month fund. And so you have to, you have to dive in there hungrily looking, get excited about looking for things you could have done differently for beliefs that may not have been optimized for different ways of doing things, because this is what's going to help you grow and help you be more resilient for the next time something comes along. And by the way, something else is coming. <laughs> yeah. um, and so this is just, this is life. Life throws us curveballs. And so the, the most um, efficient, the most successful people among us are the ones who look at what's my role in this situation? What can I do different next time? So, I mean, and I've heard this term getting thrown around quite a bit over the last eight, nine months, however the pandemic's been now, is financial resilience financial resilience. So I, I guess you're answering that really well is like, what can I control? And to your point, we can control emergency fund. We can control diving into our money stories to see how we feel around money. Is there anything else you would add to someone who wants to build their financial financial resiliency or just to be, be able to be more resilient around the next market correction, around the next pandemic? Yeah. So what I love to do is study examples of resilience. So what I'm hungry for constantly, Sean, is I'm always looking to upgrade my beliefs. You know, it's, it's kind of like your phone's operating system. You know, I, I love that Apple just says, hey, do you want to upgrade? And you click a button and yes, you get it. Well, you got to work a little harder <laughs> when it comes to your own beliefs. Uh, so I'm, I'm just, I am so hungry for ways that people look at things in ways that are optimal. I'll give you a, I'll give you a fun example. So um, as we were talking about before the show, um, I just moved from Hawaii. So I've been in Hawaii for 20 years. And I, I came to Colorado where, and some of your listeners may be, may be able to relate to this. Well, sometimes it gets cold here and, and sometimes there's snow. And um, this is what I literally did. So I literally did research into the Scandinavian mindset. So if, if you're not familiar with that, they, they tend to be some of the happiest people on earth. Yeah. Um, and they live in one of the coldest places you know, <laughs> where they don't get a lot of sunlight. So I got, I got really curious, like, how are they so happy in the middle of winter? And um, I was gleefully reading about their entire mindset and approach to winter, which, by the way, they just start to get really excited about it. They fantasize about it. They, they, they think about fires and warm cups of cocoa and, and how to get out. And, you know, all, they just have this incredibly exciting vision of surviving. the winter. Well, look at me say survive. See, yeah. that's a perfect example yeah. of, of me trying to upgrade my mindset around yeah around winter. And so just, just as an example, so um, I'm constantly looking for ways, other ways of looking at my life and my experiences and the world. That, uh, yeah. I, I love that idea of constantly upgrading and that goes to your idea about openness earlier. Um, I have to chuckle. I'm living in uh, I, I have an American vehicle. It was a used one. It came from the state. So it has Fahrenheit in the, the car. And when I dropped my kids off at daycare, it said 
five degrees Fahrenheit. And so uh, that's our mindset here. We get six hours of sun during the winter and it's cold, but we get outside and we ski and we cross country ski. There's patios that are outside with heaters. Um, uh, so we, we do survive. We, we thrive sometimes, a lot of times. <laughs> it's long. Yeah, perfect example. And, and so um, when it comes to your financial life, find examples of people who are a step or two ahead of where you are. Maybe mm-hmm. they're 10 steps ahead, but try to look at how they look at the world. Try to look at how they look at business. Try to look at how they look at failure. What do they do? And so what's fabulous is we have podcasts now. We have books, of course, mm-hmm. um, even some documentaries where you can get into the mindset of some of these people who are these really, really high performers. But look even closer. So find somebody who's a step or two ahead of you, you know, because what you'll hear, again, this goes back to your tribe. Like if you live in a tribe, just for example, of people who've never published a book, what you're going to hear is that, um, oh, it's impossible, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. nobody there has done it. And so if that's something as an example and something you wanted to do, well, find somebody who's done it. Mm-hmm. Because when you talk to a group of people who've done something, they're like, well, of course, yeah. of course you can do it, you know, and this is how you do it. And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm const- const- constantly looking for in my own life. And that's what I would encourage other people to do is maybe it's a step or two ahead of you, somebody who's further along in their business, somebody who's, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is you want to do. They're better at a sport than you are, you know, Um, and then pick their brain. How are they looking at the world? How are they looking at this experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I like that approach because it's that openness, but you're, and you're not, um, sometimes we could feel, um, not fear, but like, oh, I'm not good enough from those people. But I like your approaches. Approaches is like, hey, I want to be open. I want to learn from you. Yeah, well, and to your point too, like, um, you know, if if you want to go, call Elon Musk right now. He's not going to answer your phone call. Like he doesn't know you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you might need to, (laughs) don't get discouraged. Maybe you need to just ask somebody a step or two ahead of you, you know, that, that, and just constantly be doing that because all you need is the next step. That's Mm -hmm. what you need. Yeah. Yeah. That's so I guess on on that point, I'm curious what your vision or your perspective on wealth is. Uh, I know in your new book, I was reading a bit about what what are some of the topics and you talk about well-being, I believe, in there. So, but wealth, and I was researching wealth and like the origins of the words and well-being is one of the origins of like of wealth, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, I found it was the, the old English word of, of W-E-A-L meant welfare or well-being. So anyhow, it is, it is maybe not. But what is your, I guess, philosophy or belief around wealth to you in your money story? You know, th- that's actually fascinating what you just said. Um, and you've made me extremely curious around that. I, I do feel like for many people in many countries and certainly throughout most of humanity, wealth and well-being were probably exactly the same thing. Like, did you have health care? Did you have food? You know, I think mm-hmm. it gets a little bit more um, uh, more of a challenging concept to unwind when, um, like I said, in, in this current environment of abundance for, for most people yeah. in America, you know, that's where it gets a little bit like less connected with that. I would say mm-hmm. like you have food, you have healthcare. Um, and so I, it's funny cause I, I think rich, the word rich is defined as somebody who has more money than you and they don't deserve it. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's always a bit of stank. Yes, there is. <laughs> on, on the word rich, which I always yeah. find fascinating. Um, but yeah, it's a, even even so, like wealth is an objective. It's a very yep. subjective term. It's a very subjective term. Um, and I'll hear people who rail at, for example, the one percent. 
Mm -hmm. um, and how they don't deserve it, how it should be taken from them. And then when I take that perspective, I widen it out and I say, well, hey, guess what? You're actually in the top 1% in the world. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not talking about me. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about these other people. And so I'm, I'm always sort of fascinated with, with how we're defining wealth within ourselves and how, and frankly, how we judge other people who have more than us mm-hmm. or judge people who have less than us. I mean, this is just yeah. sort of a natural human response. Like you're, you're in your own socioeconomic tribe and you have, you're going to have an automatic tendency to look down on people who, have, who are in a different tribe, whether they have more, or whether they have less. Um, so anyway, I, I'm not sure that I have an answer. Those are just some yeah. observations. No, that's, that's great. Um, I, this may, I have like a, a standard, two standard questions I ask everybody, but this is my last question for you. Um, when you talked about being open, I've actually worked with a, um, I don't know, a friend, maybe <laughs> some people call him business coach. I call him a friend, but, uh, and, and he always talks to me about living a congruent life. And that's where our values are in line with our actions. So he always says, if I take a camera and walk around, I'll be able to tell you what you value based on your work as a psychologist and certified financial planner. What would you say, uh, like living like our expenditures, aligning with our core values. How often do you see those align and what kind of, what, what happens to us when we, like if we value something, but we're our actions or expenses or spending things on that actually don't align with our core values. So I, first of all, I love the concept of congruence mm-hmm. and I just want to throw out there that that is not possible to achieve. <laughs> so okay. um, it's sort of like happiness, right? Like yeah. it's not, it's not a destination. It's an aspiration. Right. Okay. So I feel like, um, that we should aspire for that. And it's something we should constantly be evaluating and paying attention to. Like, frankly, the more often you look at it, the better it'll be. And you'll be right. sort of drifting back on course, right? But then you're going to get off course. And this right. is sort of how life goes. And so um, I think it's a fabulous exercise is mm-hmm. just to constantly be looking at what do I value most and where are my allocation of resources going? And I'll just throw time out there as an example. Like for me, time, when, when you say wealth, I, I do a lot of work on social media. Um, and so I put TikTok out a lot of videos. Now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I put out a lot of videos there. And my definition of wealth there yeah. is owning your time. Like right. to me, that is, to me, that's my definition of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, not owning a watch, not owning a car, not owning a big house. I mean, th- those are fine goals. But if, if you don't own your time and, and yeah. you're, you're constantly having to work to pay those things, to me, that's not my personal definition of wealth. And so mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's owning that, owning your time. And so if I think about time in, in terms of congruence, so what matters most to you in your life? What matters most to me in my life? And where am I spending my time? And so for me, I, for me as a um, recovering workaholic, and I say recovering because it's aspirational. <laughs> it's something that I'm constantly looking at um, because I feel this need to work and I always want to work and I, want, I never feel like I'm doing enough. Um, and so I, I'm aware of this, though, because I'm aware that this comes from my father, which comes from my grandfather, which frankly comes from my great grandfather. And that guy um, was sort of thought of as, as a, um, a, he didn't do anything of, of value. So people thought he was lazy. And so mm. there's, I'm the third generation trying to make up for that guy. Uh which is, which is fascinating, right? It's like, Whoa, I think we should all just lighten up a little bit. Um, (laughs) but that's a script I was playing out. So for me, for example, my, my children, my family, um, and my health are most important to me if you ask me, but for me, it's a constant, where am I spending my time? 
Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so I, I say health is important. Am I getting up from the desk and going for a walk or, or exercising? And so it's something that I think is, it's an extremely useful exercise to be constantly evaluating. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, time is that one, one thing we all want, but the interesting thing is we have it. <laughs> we just you spend it differently. Um, and, and I liked your, your, your perspective on, we need to aspire for congruence. So thank you for that. Um, so I have uh, just two little questions, uh, quick ones. If um, Based on our conversations and the five books plus the new one you have coming out, if there was one book that you wrote that you'd recommend that kind of fits the theme of what we're talking about, I mean, it'd be great if everyone read all five, but maybe we'll start with one. Uh, what book would you recommend? Um, I, would, I would recommend Money Mammoth. And that's the okay. one that's coming out December yep. 15th. Uh, and for several reasons. One is I feel like, um, every time you sit down and you put thought into creating something like that, um, you're, you're integrating everything you've learned since then. So mm-hmm. I, I actually love mind over money, but we wrote that in 20, um, 2009. And so there's been a lot of research that we've been able to integrate in this new one. So that's the one I would recommend. Okay, great. And, uh, you might recognize this question because this was a question that you got me to, you guys got us to do as a paper, but if you were to write a legacy uh, paper or yeah, legacy letter to your uh, great grandchildren or your descendants. What would you tell them about money? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would I would really focus on money as 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 a tool, and um, really focusing on the the fact that that um, a tool can be used to break something and tear it down, or it can be used to build something, and that it's. It's up to them to use whatever um, benefits they have, whatever privileges they have. And um, hopefully that's financial, Sean, like Mm -hmm. part of my legacy. I'd I'd like to create a different um, financial legacy for my family than the one I inherited. Um, And so hopefully I'm getting, I'm feeling a lot of uh, um, aspirations now that you've even brought this topic up (laughs) about how I want to deliver that to them and and how to go about doing that. But essentially that's what I would want to do is, is, is talk to them about the responsibility that comes with any sort of privilege and benefit, whatever that is for them around, around money. And that um, it, it's, it's, it's a benefit, but it's also a burden in the sense right. that it needs to be used um, to better society, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never heard it in terms of a tool can break something. So that's so true. All right. Well, um, Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy and I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to myself and my audience. My pleasure. And I had fun. Where can people find you before they go or before we go? Well, if they're um, respectable, <laughs> they can find me at Dr. Brad Klontz, you know, at LinkedIn and Twitter and all that. Um, but if they're a little naughty, they can find me on TikTok at <laughs> Dr. Brad Klontz. Um, I'm having a lot of fun over there and super passionate about being there. Actually, there I, I sort I'm, I'm talking towards this young mindset. I'm, I'm sort of trying to be the person that I wish I had when I was growing up, lower income as a kid and I didn't know people who were successful and I didn't know how money was supposed to work. And I, I really target my content towards um, inspiring those people there on TikTok. Yeah. I, I, I've appreciated your videos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot and uh, have a good day out in Colorado. Thank you. You too. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Brad Klons. 
as you can tell, his depth of knowledge in this field is unbelievable. He has spent decades researching psychology and money, and today we're able to see what Dr. Brad Klein's perspective is on some of these so incredibly important topics. Here are my three main takeaways. Number one is we all have a money story. And for most of us, it's unconscious. And as he mentioned, we tend to be actors and actresses that are playing out this script in our money stories. And that script was unconsciously given to us from generations ago. And when we don't come to terms to understand where that script came from and to make sense of it in our lives, it can be destructive. As he said, our money stories have a large predictor of our financial outcomes. Number two is entering the observer brain. I really liked this frame that Dr. Brad Collins did as he talked about getting to a place where we can put space between stimulus and a response. And I like how he talked about it's being aware of your thoughts and feelings by interrupting those patterns and stepping back to examine them instead of just reacting on them. We talked about the Viktor Frankl quote at this point, but it's important to note, as he said, to be an observer, not a reactor. And I think for me, that's incredibly important because often the stimulus happens and we just are hardwired to react in a certain way, whether that's our money or anything else. And number three is financial literacy is not enough. We see it through the research. Year after year, Canadians, Americans are becoming more and more in debt, yet we have access to more information or financial literacy than ever before. To make real change, to make paradigm shifting change, we need to look at our money stories, our financial flashpoints, what beliefs around money are we holding, and how our actions are reinforcing those beliefs, often unconsciously. And when we do that, we can change the framework on how we see and feel with money. And when we're able to enter that space, then everything does change. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the shows, if you're enjoying the guests, please head over to Apple or Spotify and leave a review as it really helps to get more guests like Dr. Brad Klontz. Thank you very much and have a great day.